Hi, good morning. Good morning. Good to see you. Uh, we are walking through our membership covenant over the last several weeks um, and trying to gain a better understanding of what it means to be a member. And all of it is, is directly tied to the gospel. It's all about the gospel, the gospel that works in us and through us. So it's important we understand if we believe the gospel, it cannot puff us up. The gospel cannot make us prideful. It cannot make us selfish. It cannot make us arrogant. It cannot make us rude. It cannot make us gossipy. It cannot make us accusers. The gospel cannot make us what we shouldn't be. So the more we press into the gospel, the more the gospel takes over our hearts and the spaces we bring our hearts to. And it stands to reason the less we would see those things antithetical to it. You cannot grow in holiness and holier than thouness at the same time. It's a quote from Jared Wilson. And it, it beautifully captures what it is our life should look like when we believe the gospel. It's not that you have to quit doing all these bad things and you have to outweigh your, your bad with your good. And you have to identify this in your life and then work really hard to get rid of it. It's believe the gospel. And the gospel works in us to make us these things we should be. And then it works through us as we enter into the spaces of our life, the context of our life, the mission before us. The gospel works through us as the church to bring more and more people into this family. And that's our hope. And if it hasn't been clearly understood at this point as we're walking through this, I, I hope to make it very clear today that we do not understand membership to be those who just attend a worship gathering or even those who can articulate the gospel and understand theological concepts. Membership is much more. We desire disciples of Christ to grow in spiritual maturity, to be united in Christ alone, and then make more disciples of Christ. And maturity is not found in how much you know. We've emphasized that a lot throughout the years we've existed as a church. It's not about how much you know. It's about how you live in light of what you know. It's, it's evidence. Your maturity is evidence in how you behave because of who you are in Christ. Our being supersedes our doing, and then our doing flows out of our being. That's how the gospel works. And as you demonstrate your faith and prove that you believe the gospel by your good works and by the good fruit in your life, that fruit is then examined by the church, by your brothers and sisters. We examine it as you examine your own life. And, and we do that primarily through DNA, this discovering of truth and nurturing with truth and then the accountability moving to action because you believe this truth. This is DNA. I gave you a D in, in, in an A word if I didn't notice. And that, that's what we form in these small groups so we can hold each other to believe in this gospel so that we can see the gospel go forth so that we can see more people know Jesus. It's not just about your, your spiritual feel-goodness, whatever. I made that word up. It's not so we can just feel comforted by truth, though it comforts. It's not so we can just have our quiet time so we can start our day right, though we should be doing those things. The purpose of all of this is that God will be glorified as we believe the gospel and see more come to believe the gospel and change who we are. We're not who we used to be or someone new. No other world religion works this way. Every religion in the world says, do these right things and then you can be this. 
God in His great mercy has said, you're not good enough. You can never be good enough. I'm going to give you a new nature. And then you'll do these right things. So all of this is about our individual reconciliation to God because we were far from Him. And covenanting with this local body of believers to work together to be ministers of reconciliation in our context. That we are all individually reconciled and we come together as ministers of reconciliation to make disciples. And due to the nature of this ongoing work of salvation, this sanctification, uh, we, it means we have to intentionally look at our sin and see Jesus is better. It means we have to intentionally put the flesh to death over and over again, knowing that Christ has put it to death once and for all. And finding greater freedom, greater peace, greater joy in the person and work of Jesus. That's seeing and savoring Jesus because He is our Savior. And He's better than anything else. Over and over and over again we do this. All right? this, is, this is all an introduction to what we should have as a church. We should be more proactive in our celebration of God's grace and all of this because We're not responsible. We cannot do this. If it were up to us, we'd fail miserably. So we're dependent on this work of the Spirit. We're in awe of the grace of God because we know we don't deserve it. He's continually gracious. He's blessing us with things that we can easily make our gods and and worship our children or our education or our intelligence or our sense of humor or our professionalism or whatever whatever it is. These are all blessings from God that we should celebrate the grace of God. Moreover, as a church... It would be good if we could develop a culture of grace so that when we talk about sin, we don't just feel ashamed or self-righteous. If we could have a culture of, of grace as a church, then days like today when we have to talk about walking in holiness would be much easier to process. We'd have a better framework and appreciation for the grace of God and the work of Christ in accomplishing all these things we're striving for. So, we return to these questions that we ask To consider who we are, we start with who is God, what has He done through Christ, who are we in Christ, and then what do we do in light of this good news? Who is God, what has He done through Christ, who are we in Christ, and then what do we do in light of this good news? Considering that, we ask you, if you're going to be a member of this church, to covenant with us in these three points we're going to go over today. To walk in holiness in all areas of life through the power of the Holy Spirit by the grace of God for the glory of God. So to walk in holiness. To abstain from illegal drug use, drunkenness, gossip, and other sinful behavior as described in the Bible. So we're abstaining from sinful behavior. And you covenant to refrain from activities that Scripture would call foolish. Now we are striving to walk in holiness. It's necessary if we're going to walk in holiness, that means set apart, that we do not participate actively in the sinful things of the world. And when we do, we repent of those things. And this idea of foolishness, a fool is is someone who misuses the gifts of God, uh, and namely cognitive ability to make logical decisions, to make poor decisions. A fool is someone who makes poor decisions, abusing the gifts of God. And foolishness isn't necessarily sin, but it often and probably always leads to sin. In fact, Scripture is very hard on the fool, especially the book of Proverbs. It's all about not being a fool. Wisdom is something to be cherished. Fools are not, are not wise. And so the expectation is not only that you don't 
participate in foolish things, but that we wouldn't even associate with those who are known for their foolishness. So considering these three things, in the Word of God we find many rules and expectations, these standards for which we're supposed to live by, and all of them, the the requirement on us, the expectation is that we would do so perfectly. That we would have never failed and that we will never fail. That's what's required of us in the Word of God. All the rules you can think of that you could know of in the Bible, we're supposed to live by them without flaw. Perfectly holy as the one who is calling us is holy. And so, I don't know about you, but I find that troublesome. How we view the law in in the Word of God is as crucial as how we live in light of it. Our obedience to the law is important. But how we view what it means to be obedient to the law... I think should be considered first. And so what we're, what we're facing, we have to go to Scripture because it just doesn't make sense. We know we're not perfect, so then how does this all work? So let's go to Romans chapter 13. We're going to walk through a few different passages this morning and draw some conclusions. Um, Romans 13 is an interesting place to go for this concept. The beginning of this chapter is talking about how to submit to authority, governmental authority. The Apostle Paul is writing the church in Rome who's under the oppression of the Roman soldiers, forcing them to do certain things. There's Roman rule requiring certain things of them. And so this encouragement to submit to authority is there. Um, but then it, and then it ends with, the, the section ends with this idea of not being indebted to authority, not being indebted to anyone. And so we're going to pick it up in verse 8 following that idea says, owe no one anything. So, as referring back to verse 7 about not being in debt. Owe no one anything except to love each other. So there's this one exception. We never, we are never going to fulfill this debt of love that we have for each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. Those are just some, but any other commandment, so that's all of them, are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does, not, does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So we know from the teachings of Christ and elsewhere in Scripture that it's impossible for us to love people unless God first loves us. We also know that there's another law here, another thing given by Christ, to love God with all of you. That's the first and most important law. And so Paul here is, is clearly just making a natural conclusion. If you love God, you can love people. So if you love people, that's this horizontal gospel work. This For everyone here, for the culture here, let's love people. That's, that's the gospel work through us. And it only happens if there's been this vertical gospel work between us and God. Verse 11. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. This is a call to vigilance. This is a call to action. This is wake up. The sleep metaphor here is like this, this ethical apathy. Don't just have knowledge. Don't just have understanding. Open your eyes. Live in light of this. Wake up. So he's saying, 
There's no time to sit around and do nothing. There's no time to sit around and just talk about theological concepts. There's action to be done. There's, there's this horizontal work. There's this gospel work through us to be done. This loving people must be done. Verse 12, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the work of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So last time we were together, this is, we used this passage 11 through 14 to consider Jesus is better than the sin. Jesus takes over where the sin left off. Jesus is, is worth our desire. Jesus is worthy of our worship and praise. And the sin doesn't hold up anything to Him. So we can easily cast that aside. So this is begging us to see, not shame on you for doing these things, but Jesus is better. Why would you do anything else? And following this chapter 13, uh, we're not going to go there, but verse, or chapter 14 gets into this instruction for the church and in interacting with brothers and sisters. Specifically, it's an encouragement to not cast shame and judgment on one another when we fall into sin or when we uh, participate in things that we disagree with our brothers and sisters for participating in. So not casting shame when you judge one another. For there is a judge, the judge, God, who will we'll all bow before, will all confess, will all be held accountable for our lives. And then there's this encouragement to avoid causing one another to stumble. So towards one another, here's what we gather from these two chapters. Towards one another, we are to behave sacrificially for the sake of unity, with faith in Christ, disapproving of evil, not critical, critically condemning of our brothers and sisters, but gracious and considerate. And then in the end of chapter 14, we find verse 23. But whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Now, contextually, this is referring to how to understand whether or not our brothers and sisters are in sin when they do things that we disagree with. But, but it's as applicable to us as, as it comes. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. It's as clear as it sounds. Anything in your life, any motivation, any thought, any behavior is sin if it, does, if it isn't a natural overflowing from right understanding of who Christ is and what He's done. That's faith. Believing Christ is who He says He is and he, he did what He said He was going to do and He's doing what He says He's doing and He's going to do what He says He's going to do. Trusting in that. Anything in your life that doesn't proceed from that is sin. So with this understanding of sin, the overall idea that we're, we're gaining here from this passage and from the one before, we see this implicit thread of love woven throughout. Love of God, love of one another, Love for others. We would sacrifice for each other, that we would give to others, that we would love God above all else. This, this idea of love seems to be a key theme. So let's take that idea and go to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 4. Hope you can sense the building. I'm excited about it. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Another urgent call to be alert. Be sober-minded, be self-controlled. It's important that we focus, that we're all in, that we're all alert, that we're here and awake. 
to move forward. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Now this multitude of sins is the sins of others against us. So, so the idea here is that the offenses that, that we feel will be quickly forgiven or even overlooked because love abounds. Verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So now we have this understanding of this this love working through us in Christ. We are self-controlled. We are sober-minded. We are obedient. Covered in the armor of light. Walking properly. Forsaking sin. Making no provision for the flesh. Forgiving one another. Faithfully stewarding the gracious gifts of God. And all of it. All that we've talked about so far. All of it. Is for the glory of God. That we'd be on this mission. For the glory of God. That we'd understand our, our God's love for us. That we'd love one another. That we'd love others. All for His glory. Now, what does this have to do with sin, right? What does it have to do with walking in holiness? What, if all of that's only possible if we're in Christ. And all of the commandments we would ever be required to follow in order to walk in holiness, in order to forsake sin, all of the commandments you could ever pull out of Scripture, all of them are outranked by and, and totally incorporated by this one. Love. If we love God... We obey His commands. If we are obedient, it's evidence that we love God. And second, love your neighbor as yourself. And then with considering all of that, it seems simple, right? What is the opposite of sinning? Not sinning, right? I mean, we don't want to be sinners, so we got to think about it. what is the opposite of sinning? Well, the opposite of indulging in sin must be resisting sin. That makes sense, logically. That's how we think, naturally. We, we work really hard to figure out what sin is so that we can stop doing it. And then we work really hard to stop doing it. There's this, this old Mad TV sketch. No, we're not expecting Mad TV to come into the conversation. I, w- I watched it in a psych class, so it wasn't like I was just watching Mad TV on my own. I'm just kidding. I might have. All right. But Bob Newhart, Mo Collins, I don't know if you know who they are, but they were in this sketch. Mo Collins is a, a lady. She walks into a psychiatrist's office. She's going to get some help with her claustrophobia, her bulimia, her self-destructive relationships with other men, or with men, and, and many other problems that she has. And she sits down, and he looks at her in the eyes and says, okay, I have a very simple process. It's only going to cost you $5. If we go over five minutes, then I'll charge you a little more, but it's never gone longer than five minutes. And she seems amazed, and she's like, okay, well then here's all my problems. And he listens to her explain all of these issues that she has, and he says, I have two words for you. And she's like, do I need to write them down? He's like, you can, but I think you can remember them. This whole time he's talking to her in this, you know, the psychiatrist's voice, very calming, soothing. This is going to solve, solve your problems. And he leans forward, and he looks at her. 
And he says, stop it. And she's like, but I can't. I don't have control over this. And like, well, you don't want to live your life in fear, do you? You want to ruin all your relationships? Then just stop it. Just stop it. It's ridiculous, right? And it's funny to us because we realize that's not exactly how it works, right? Human nature is very flawed in the way that we can't really control these compulsions we have. If we could just stop fearing, if we could just stop sinning, then we would, right? Because we don't want to, but we do. So why do we allow it to control us in that way? It's interesting how that sketch identifies this problem of sin in our life we can't get rid of. We can't just stop it. And the reason we can't just stop it is because we, we don't possess the power to overcome it in ourselves. We don't have the answers. The opposite of sinning isn't just stop sinning. Because we can't. It's not just not sinning. Rather, there's, there's something that has to come into our lives to supplant the old nature. Christ must move in. The love of Christ must overcome us. We were once controlled by sinful nature and given new nature in Christ. We are now compelled by the love of Christ. That's in 2 Corinthians 5. No longer controlled by our, our selfish desires, but compelled by the love of Christ if we believe the gospel. Rather than, than just stopping sinning, we have to trust God will stop our sinning. Love is the answer to our lack of obedience. There's nothing greater than love. There's nothing that outlasts love. The flesh, the old you, the old me was controlled by an obsession with me, an obsession with yourself, an obsession of self. And now the new me is controlled by the love of Christ. Therefore, considering yourself, therefore, if you cannot seem to get enough stuff in your life to make you happy, you don't have a greed problem as much as you have a love problem. If you can't stop looking at porn and lusting after every girl you see, your problem isn't lust, your problem is love. If you have an obsession with impressing people and you don't have, you don't have a vanity issue, you have a love issue. If everyone in your life annoys you to no end, you can't get around anyone that doesn't just rub you the wrong way, you don't have an anger issue, you have a love issue. Now, of course, all of this is about self-exaltation. That's why it's a problem to God, because He should be exalted. Of course, all of this is a sin issue. And you, but you have to bring it to this idea that you cannot love God if you exalt yourself. You cannot love people if you exalt yourself. We put love on pause in order to sin. The opposite of sinning is loving. 1 John makes this very clear. He talks a lot about love in, in chapter 4, verses 10 through 12. We see how love is so central. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we, ought, we also ought to love one another. 
No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Also Galatians chapter 5 verses 13 and 14. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We are to freely love because we are loved. Our sin was paid for. We we don't have to live anxiously wondering if we're ever going to be good enough. Because we're loved. God loves you. Maybe you just need to hear that today. The creator of the universe. God loves you. He wants you to know you're loved. And when you know you're loved by God, you can then love. And if it, if it isn't that we are, are struggling with sin and sin is our big problem and we always just focus on the sin, but we need to be aware that, that our enemy hates us. Satan wants to destroy you. But your God loves you and His love is big enough. Don't just try to stop sinning. See that you're loved and then love. Why, why then, if, if we can understand love to be the opposite of sinning, why then do we continue to struggle with sin? If it's as simple as, well, God loves me so then I can love, why do we keep sinning? I think the answer is because we don't believe we're loved. You know yourself well, probably, I assume you know yourself well, unless you just deny looking in the mirror and thinking about yourself like some alien, because everyone thinks about themselves. You know yourself well. You know your flaws, your hang-ups. You know what's going to set you off. You know what to be around, what not to be around. You know the wickedness that lives in you. You know your thoughts that you don't want anyone else to know. And so it's hard to imagine God loves you. I know that's true of you because it's true of me. I have to think on, dwell on, consider God's love for me and then be amazed because I'm truly in awe when I consider who I am. If for some reason you think you're worthy of God's love, then you might have, you might have some pride issues to deal with. Lay those things down. Confess to one another, I'm not good enough. I'm broken. I need Jesus. And then, see the truth of the gospel, Christ wrapping himself around you, and God seeing you as his righteous child because of the work of Christ. And know that you're loved, not because you could ever be good enough, but because Christ has done everything necessary that you would be loved. And when you fail to believe that you're loved, know that that is a problem of faith. Your faith is lacking. That's why Jesus, upon every failure of His disciples, would approach it with this, with this statement, you have little faith. The problem is the belief that we're loved, not that we're loved. So this failure to believe is what Paul was talking about when he said, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. In these moments of weakness, we fail to love Because we've placed our faith in something other than Christ, namely ourselves, our own abilities, our own strengths, with concern for our own kingdoms 
and our own popularity and what people think of us. Lay that stuff down and remember God loves you. So when we think about faith in Christ, uh, we need to consider what exactly it means to have little faith and what it means to have big faith. Uh, I've recently uh, been listening to an album by a group called Beautiful Eulogy. If you're not a fan, maybe you should be. They're awesome. Uh, they're poets slash hip-hop artists, or whatever you want to call them. Um, and they, they just present the gospel and, and the depths of theology and the wrestling with humanity that we need to really consider in light of who God is and what He's done, who are we and where we should, what should we do. And they have and the members of a church and the pastor, the preaching pastor there, his name's Art Azurdia. I don't know where that name comes from, but that's his name, Art Azurdia. Uh, and and they put an excerpt from a sermon on every album they do. And and on this most recent one, he's talking about faith. And so I want to read a part of that to you because it so beautifully describes how our faith grows. Authentic faith is not merely believing in God, it is believing God. Taking God at His word, living in obedience to His revelation, whatever the cost, because you know down deep in your bones that God will always do what He says. His speaking is His doing. It is an abiding assurance in God and His promises that animates you to persevere in your obedience to Him. Do you wish to be more consistently obedient, steadily persevering as a Christian, a stronger Christian, a more courageous and outspoken Christian? Then you need to strengthen your faith. Your faith instinctively strengthens in direct proportion to the expansion of the object of your faith. You're expanding. You expand your understanding of the object of your faith and your faith will obediently follow. The object of your faith, if indeed you are a Christian, is Jesus Christ and all of His promises. Is your faith weak? It is owing to the fact that you don't know the the object of your faith well enough. But when Jesus Christ becomes progressively bigger, or better yet, your understanding of who He is progressively conforms to reality, your faith will become increasingly stronger. So I ask you this morning, not how is your faith, rather, who is the object of your faith? Can you comprehend the bigness of our Savior? The answer is no. You can never imagine how big He is. You cannot fathom how great His love is for you. But it's great. So fix your eyes on Christ. See His bigness. And allow your heart to be filled with His love. Eradicating the sin that tries to grip and rule your life. See that you're walking in holiness. Your dedication to the Savior. Your desire to be better is all contingent on do you believe you're loved by Him? And do you see how big His love is for you? If you desire freedom, your only hope is to love God and love people. If you desire to be obedient, your only hope is to know that you're loved by God and then love. 
Do you love? Knowing your sinful tendencies and the weakness of your flesh, you have to position yourself in a place to succeed in this battle against sin. So it's going to require you to turn from the things that are explicitly sinful in your life. See them as they are. Scripture calls them out. See them as they are. Deny their satisfaction. Deny that they're better than Christ because it's true Christ is better. Turn from them. Turn back to Him. Consider the depths of God's love for you as His child. He loves you. And then fight. Fight your addiction to sin with love for God and love for people. Serve one another. You cannot manufacture the good fruits of the Spirit. But your love for God and your love for people will demonstrate these good fruits of the Spirit. So yes, you should have these things in place to fight. You, should, you need to be away from the things that you're tempted to give in to. You have to be wise in, in asking people to come into your life to help you war against the things that would try and take over. But the work you need to be doing internally is considering your God, considering His goodness, considering His love, and being overwhelmed by it. It's an ongoing battle between your flesh and your spirit. And it requires you to feed your spirit. And stop feeding your flesh. Whoever is better fed wins the fight. So soak in the Word of God. Meditate in it. Feast on it. Call out to your Father. He loves you. He hears you. He protects you. He gives you all you need. Trust Him. And then fight. And know that your fighting is not just for you, but it's for this kingdom. That God is at work through His body as we have covenanted together to fight these things, to trust in God, to love Him, and to love people. We're at work establishing the kingdom of God. It's so much bigger than you. It's so much bigger than even us as this local body of believers. This is for the souls of those who would come long after the crossing church. This is in unity with the souls of those who worship Jesus for as far back as the first human beings to walk the earth. We're together in this beautiful work of the gospel in us and through us to the glory of our King. So let's praise Him for it. And it will be evident. This is how we're going to know. It will be evident in your life by your fruit. So in closing, this passage of Scripture from Galatians chapter 5 that may be familiar to some of you. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, Jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and if that's not enough, anything like that. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. To be clear, it's not saying if you're doing those things, you're going to hell. Though it is saying that. More clearly, it's saying if you're doing these things, it's evidence that you don't know God. It's evidence that the kingdom is not yours. If you're living your life in these ways, 
submitting yourself to this sin, it's clear you don't realize your God loves you. It's clear you don't see love as the opposite of this sinning. You don't have a freedom in Christ if this is the fruit in your life. So here's that's here the warning. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Any such things there is no law. Against such things there is no law. There's freedom. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's the old you, dead and gone. The new you, alive in Christ, compelled, controlled by the love of Christ, produces good fruit. We're not trying to make good fruit. We produce good fruit because of who we are. We praise God for all of it. Let's pray. Father, I thank You so much for Your love. I pray that more than ever we are aware of how Your love should move us, should change us. Help us, each one as individuals, to recognize the sin in our life and not to feel shamed or overwhelmed, but to be grateful for Your love, grateful that You took us as we were, dead in our sins, as we stood enemies of the cross, children of wrath, sons and daughters of disobedience, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air. And You freed us. You gave us life. You loved us. And You continue to love us, though we continue to sin. Make us aware of those who surround us, those who love us in this fight. Help us to better love one another, to better love those outside of this church, those far from You, that as Christ laid down His life to see His brothers and sisters come back to the Father, that we would be willing to lay down our lives to see our long-lost brothers and sisters come back to the Father. That in the name of love, to the glory of God, we would do whatever it takes to walk in holiness to do away with sin, to avoid foolishness, to exalt Christ above all else. In Jesus' name, amen.